This is the Tuesday night session from the CB Northwest 2017 Annual Enrichment Conference, Beholding the Glory of God in All. Speaker George Verwer in General Session 3. What a privilege to worship with such a great ministry. I hope all of your uh, churches have, uh, have great music. In studying the global scene, and our movement was one of the very first in missions to appreciate Larry Norman and, and engage in uh, all different kinds of music, old and new. Keith Green became a very, very close friend, taken in such an amazing way. Tens of thousands here in this country found Christ through Keith Green. Many made commitments to missions. I, I did his memorial concerts in the UK. I'm in, still in touch with his widow. His widow. But as I've looked at the global scene, uh, music, especially contemporary music, but all kinds of music, has been one of the greatest things that God has used. To me also, music is one of the greatest smacks in the face of evolution. That all this giftedness, I often listen to Beethoven, especially his piano. Uh, I've listened to almost all the top classical people and that that could be all just sort of an accident. It's sort of just this little slime thing came out of the ocean somewhere. It learned how to write music later on. I celebrate music. I'm not sure as someone who battles a lot of discouragement and a very emotional person, I'm not sure I would have made it without music and not just Christian music. The greatest mistake we made in the first few years of our movement was the failure to grasp the importance of art and the failure to distinguish between things that were really worldly and things that were just part of our culture. Swindoll's book, Grace Awakening, helped us, other people before that, helped us in that important pilgrimage, especially our European brothers and sisters who often have a different uh, concept of what's worldly and not worldly. So I hope that you have great music in your church. It's not easy because sometimes you have to ask someone to step aside so that a younger person can step in. But if that person who's older has been actually living out that music that they're playing and singing, they will be more than willing to let other younger people have the opportunity. And they can always go and sing in the street and see non-Christians come to Jesus. <laughs> well, it's amazing how few of you comment about my global jacket. I know, I guess, at Oregon, I've heard most of you are all quite shy. <clears throat> but uh, the comments I get on this are usually airline hostesses. In fact, I thought they were going to kidnap me on one plane in order to get my uh, jacket. These are very famous. We I gave one actually to an Oregon lady. Uh, well, no, let me go back. She was on our ship visiting, though she was working with our team in Ireland. And uh, I left one of these jackets behind and so that we were trying to get a lot of money for our new ship. We needed actually a couple of million. And so I said, yeah, can you, when I'm not there, you may try auctioning that. And our Irish leader was a pretty good salesperson so we auctioned this jacket and this little lady from oregon not a wealthy lady i think her husband had died she had some money from the house 
she gave $90,000 for one of these jackets. At that time, a business person who later went broke, a business person on the East Coast uh, said anybody on OM, knowing most people on OM don't have any money much, anybody on OM who gives to the ship, he will double it. She just happened to be on OM short term for that time, and so we saw twice that much money come in to purchase Lagos Hope. So I've often presented these when Peter Maiden became my successor. He got a jacket when Lawrence Tong uh, became his successor. He got a jacket. We've presented these to various people. And tonight I'm going to present this jacket to someone very uh, special. I'll probably get a little emotional. And believe me, there's a message in what I'm telling you. Because one of the greatest struggles in my life is so many of my prayers have never been answered. So many of my dreams have never happened. And when I came to Jesus, 1955, one of the first things I started to do was to pray for relatives. And I had an uncle, a fairly wealthy uncle. So I started to pray for him. I knew his, his son quite well. So I started to pray for him. And over all the many years, I never did see uh, very much. But uh, the son of my uncle, um, he had a son. I'm not sure how much I prayed for him. I prayed a little bit because, you know, we're going to head toward the fourth generation and still didn't see much. But finally, the fourth generation in God's providence, a little girl named Angie wrote me, um, the granddaughter of my nephew, my uncle's son, and said she was interested in Operation Mobilization and the ship. I was so excited, and I did a lot of praying to make sure she got through all the red tape and got the money, and she came to the ship and served on our ship in a wonderful way, and then met a really sort of wild type of guy from Canada, and it's because of those two that I'm actually here now, because they came to be director of camp. Todd Moore, I wrote it on my hand so I could remember. And I want to honor Angie by giving you this jacket. Adam needs to work a lot harder to get his jacket. But please come up. Both of you come up together. Stuck on my watch. And Adam, you put the jacket on Angie. And then I'm going to pray for both of you because... I know you're stepping out into something new, and you're always talking about India, uh, which is quite scary. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you for Adam and Angie. I thank you for their ministry at Camp Tadur. I thank you that they told some people about me, and somehow it's resulted in me being here. We, you have blessed them now with four little girls, and we do uh, just give you praise for what you've done in their lives together. We remember the wedding right here in this, up near Portland somewhere. Um, we just praise you for the number of years you've given them in marriage. We believe they're pace setters, they're examples for their generation, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You have been very proactive with the books. And I'll be sharing that on Facebook. 
and uh, telling people what uh, wonderful people there are here in the Northwest. Um, I realized coming here how wonderful, absolutely wonderful, the weather is where I live in London, England. <laughs> and I'll be a lot more thankful and not complain so much when I get back home. And I hope many of you will eventually get to England. I travel free of charge all over London as a senior citizen, and I'd be happy to meet you somewhere, and we can have a cup of tea or coffee and catch up. London is, a, in Greater London, a city of 10 million. We have 1 million Muslims. It's not as easy as it used to be for Americans to get visas, and no problem getting tourist visas. And I just hope you will pray for London. There's only a few books that we have big quantity left that we really want to move, that some of you who have your cars here, just take a box and give them out in your church to other people. One is a book especially for some of the women in your church. It's written by a woman, and it's, uh, it's just fascinating stories. I think women often like stories better than men. I'm sure many men like stories too. So maybe... Uh, you could pass this on. Some of your wives are not here. Maybe you have a daughter, but pass this on as a gift to one of the women that you know. We have a lot of Gospels of John yet uh, just to take and give away. And this comes from a family in Oregon. Uh, it's a long story. We don't have time for it. But um, I hope you'll pick up a box of those uh, Gospels of John. We still have a few copies of pro-life. I'm so proactive about this book, I actually pay some people to give it away. And it's so sad that people, because politically this cause has not made such great ground and it's unsure about the future, they sort of think we've lost. Every baby is important. And if people would just read, even if they read both sides of the story, they will often make the decision. Uh, that they should be involved in caring for the unborn. And now with the photographs and with children being born extremely premature and living, I just saw one on the front page of the paper in Britain, even more reason why we should be concerned for the unborn. Take a few extras of those, give it away. One of the themes of our conference has been the revolution of love, we brought a lot of extra copies of that, and we still have a few copies of this sort of book of the week about women, SOS. So some of you, if you have a car that's a lot easier than an airplane, uh, please take some extra books, take a box, and give them away in your church. We're going to start this evening in the book of Acts. We're not going to be there very long because we're going to the Gospel of Luke uh, turn first of all to the, back to the book of Acts, this time chapter 20. I was still selling fire extinguishers. I was about a year and a half in Jesus. And I was traveling all the way to Las Vegas, setting up agents to sell these extinguishers. And I stopped and visited my aunt, a woman who knew Jesus, um, a southern woman who married a verwer. She helped him come to Jesus. He's a Navy guy, an incredible story. She's still alive and a wonderful prayer partner and a sacrificial giver. 
But her mother was there. She was one of these really hardball persons with the Church of Christ and the Christian movement. Have you met those? They've modified a bit. But back those days, if you weren't baptized by immersion, you could expect hell. That was a scary night for me, really. I was quite a young Christian, and I thought I was saved until I met her. And uh, so she, I don't remember all she said, but I uh, decided to study the book of Acts to see what it said about baptism. I read the whole book of Acts that night. And I came to the conclusion that baptism wasn't linked with salvation. It was linked with reality, with discipline, with identifying with Jesus. And I was baptized by immersion a couple years later. But that same night, God gave me what I felt then was a life verse. I think since then I've had many life verses. And I want to share that with you before I jump into the rest of this message. It's Acts chapter 20. In verse 24, I do want to read it in context because it's more powerful in context. Uh, by the way, every session I've wanted to mention this wonderful book. I think these are such valuable tools. I've learned about your movement and your vision, the whole covenant thing, um, this convergent thing. Uh, it's, it, you know, that sounds like a new film, you know, uh, but it's, it looks like a good thing. And... <laughs> And then I noticed there's a section in the back uh, for notes for my sessions. And uh, some people, of course, they, they give a few notes in advance since I never know what I'm speaking at about until I see people's eyes. I, I have trouble putting anything in there. So those pages are all blank. But tonight, more than any other message, I'd appreciate if you jot down uh, notes and you'll, you'll understand why when I get to the second part. But let's pick it up at verse 19, chapter 20. Referring to the Apostle Paul, serving the Lord with great humility. I'd love to talk about that for an hour. I remember Andrew Murray's book on humility came to me in Bombay as a young missionary to India. I don't think I was ever the same. It broke me, it humbled me, it exposed subtle arrogance, especially in the way I was sometimes treating my wife and my family. Humility with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. We touched on that this morning, did we not? You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. Somebody called that 2020 vision. Public ministry, house-to-house -house ministry. For many of us here, our public ministry will finish. If my memory keeps going downhill the way it is, my preaching ministry may someday be finished. But I don't think my private ministry will be finished. If, of course, something like Alzheimer's comes, surely God understands that. And then a lot of things close but even often people with Alzheimer's, you find them singing hymns and praising God. And some of them seem a lot happier than those who claim that their marbles are all in place. So a lot of it is a bit of a mystery. Acts 20, 20. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Isn't it amazing how many times in the New Testament the gospel, the clear gospel of salvation by grace, pokes in? 
even in the midst of a passage where it doesn't seem to be totally fitting into what he's sharing. Verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I'm not sure how many recruits we would get in OM if when they went into our website and almost everything seems to be done through uh, internet now, and they saw that the only thing we offered you in OM was difficulties, sufferings, hardships, perhaps prison. Um, well, I'm sure we would get some applicants because I can tell you among this younger generation, and I'm often speaking to them, there are people that are hungry. They're hungry for something more than they're getting in the average church. Hopefully your church is not the average church. And one thing about the average church, they're generally boring, and often the preaching is boring. And I don't like to be militant, but I believe boring preachers should be shot. No, boring preachers should be retired and take up another occupation. So we hear all of this suffering and difficulty, and then, and this is the verse that God gave me as my life verse, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me, and my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Can you imagine the joy that floods my heart day after day when I look back at my life and realize this has been a reality pretty well every day. That somehow I put my hands on the plow like the Bible says and have never turned back. That doesn't mean I haven't sinned or haven't failed or haven't struggled with doubt and lots of other things, but I've learned about grace, about radical forgiveness, about bouncing back. That's why the Rocky series became one of my favorite series. Uh, I never got to show it really in the local Sunday school, but... Uh, Rocky always seemed to be just down. It seemed to be all over for him, and bang, he bounced back. Do you know the first thing that happened to me when I walked out of Madison Square Garden, having accepted Jesus as my Savior, not really realizing what I've done? I had this very attractive girl with me, and as we went out into the street, we bumped into a gang. They made some really uh, cutting, uh, unpleasant remark about that girl. Well, <laughs> I moved into action, my first major endeavor for justice and righteousness as a baby Christian. And within two minutes, I was laying flat on the street of New York City. The story of my great life. I've been up and down too many times. But here I am, still in God's race, still thanking God for this verse, still affirming it as one of my life verses. I'm introduced, especially in Europe, where our work is much more well-known, especially in the Netherlands, where my father is from. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I'm often introduced as a person of vision. And so I haven't been speaking about that much, but I wanted to just touch on it uh, before I get into this vision that God's given me from Luke uh, chapter 10. To prepare you for that, which is sort of the vision for my senior years, uh, I'll just share some of the other visions. Uh, maybe that word is too strong. Ideas, callings, um, guidance. That's a good word, isn't it? To, to go for something. My first place was my high school. And I shared with you 
the other night, the amazing breakthroughs in my high school and the people that came to Jesus and some of them thrust into global missions. And then I had the vision, it was a small thing, to reach tens of thousands of people in the streets of New York City. And that, of course, was pretty easy to realize. I just got tens of thousands of tracks, went through the New York City underground system. You were allowed to do that in those days, giving out tracks. And of course, two years later, Billy Graham came and a massive harvest uh, came to the Lord Jesus. I remember once in my extremism, and I think my film touches on this, I didn't want to take a seat. Madison Square Garden was completely full. I thought, I can't sit in a seat where some non-Christian can sit. This campaign is about reaching the lost. And so I ended up in the street and for the first time in my life, uh, preached in the open air there in New York City, the Big Apple. And then after that vision, um, it was Mexico. There are many things, smaller things before that. The vision God gave me for the local jail. When I was in this little liberal arts college uh, in Maryville, Tennessee, and I saw amazing things happen in the jail. So there were a lot of little things building up to this big thing that one day I just felt after reading about Mexico that we should go to Mexico next summer. And I challenged my roommate uh, and he he made the decision to go, and then I challenged the student who was a year older than me, Dale Rotan. Um, Dale Rotan is now in San Diego, and if you want an outstanding speaker and mission leader to speak in your church, uh, I would recommend Dale Rotan. He's been overseas all his life. He's a modern-day Apostle Paul, but he's somewhat of a quiet person, really more of a Barnabas. And there he is now in his senior years, an outstanding communicator, pioneered our smuggling work, which became the largest smuggling work in the whole of Eastern Europe, pioneered and um, before that pioneered Turkey in the Middle East, ended up the director of our ship, and now he's just available to share. Dale was a sophomore when I arrived as a freshman. I was warned that he was a fanatic. They said he was baptizing people in the showers, um, which wasn't really true. By the way, he's the one that later baptized me by immersion. And I bring this in purposely because I believe all of us in ministry need at least one person who we really are close to and we can share our heart with. And we just celebrated 60 years of intimate sharing friendship uh, together. On two or three occasions, Satan tried to break our relationship. We're very different. And we were in the fast lane and misunderstandings came. But in every one of those attacks to break our relationship, we knew the reality of Calvary Road, humbling ourselves and apologizing. And the tears would flow as we'd be united for battle. The story of Dale Rotan will never be told till heaven. And so Dale uh, agreed also to go with me to Mexico. And we saw how God could use us in Mexico and later discovered years later that that was one of the birthplaces of short-term missions. YWAM was being born uh, around a similar time, though their founder, Lauren Cunningham, actually came on OM in Europe in 63 when they were just being born to study and see how we went about uh, global mobilization and evangelization. I don't know if you know Lauren Cunningham, but I can tell you he's very different from me 
His theology might be a little different from me, but he's a man of God, of tremendous humility, and God has used that movement to bring hundreds, hundreds of thousands to the Lord Jesus around the world. Vision, vision for Mexico. But the bigger vision came as I left university. I was still studying in the university in the summer in Mexico, and I went to Moody Bible Institute. What a tremendous college, especially if you're interested in missions. I actually only chose Moody because it was in Chicago. I was ignorant. I didn't even know what this Bible school thing was about, but I was tired of evangelizing in the village of Maryville in the, in the, in the Smoky Mountains. I knew God was calling me to this city. I would hitchhike into Knoxville and evangelize in the bus stations. And then God opened the door to go to Chicago. Within a few months, I was in trouble at Moody as I had five or six major evangelistic activities going on and forgot that there was a rule that as a student, you're only allowed two evangelistic opportunities. And so the dean of men had me in and I caused a lot of grief around Moody for a couple of years, but I never resented my time, and I met men and women from the Muslim world like Francis Steele of the North African Mission and Lionel Gurney of the Red Sea Mission Team, a man who never married, so impassioned with Jesus and the call of global missions. And through that, I realized God was calling me to somehow lead a new thrust into the Muslim world. Dale Roton, meanwhile, had had left me. He was studying at Wheaton College, way more ac academic. By the way, I've just had three days at Wheaton College. Almost all the students, 1,400, come to chapel. And at the final meeting on the third day, I gave an invitation for radical commitment to pray the prayer from Isaiah 6. Here am I, send me. And 400 Wheaton College students stood up. This is only a month ago to pray that prayer. Don't go putting down this young generation because they're not the same as you or because they got this hang-up or that hang-up. Just repent of your own hang-ups and believe that God can do great things uh, in this younger generation who will have much more complex battles to face than many of us back in the 50s and the 60s. And so I had the joy of seeing the fulfillment of that vision for the Muslim world. We have 1,000 workers among Muslims. We helped lead that breakthrough in Algeria, bringing 30,000 Muslim Berbers to the Lord Jesus. There's not time to talk about some of the other breakthroughs, but this is harvest time for the Muslim world. There used to be only six places where you could find 1,000 Muslims worshiping Jesus. Now there's, there's 60 places where you can find Muslims uh, loving and following Jesus. There's over 120 organizations committed to working among Muslims. They will have a meeting in Thailand, uh, I think, next autumn. There's not time to go into detail. Some of you know that book, Wind in the House of Islam, and what the Lord is doing. And I hope wherever you can find Muslims, even if there's only a few in your community, that you would befriend them and try to get to know them and seek opportunities to radiate the love of the Lord Jesus. And then the vision for India, and soon I found myself living in India. That became the number one most responsive nation that we've ever worked in. Our commitment to simple lifestyle really didn't fit into the European scene. It was quite offensive. 
but our commitment to simple lifestyle was like an atomic bomb on the church in India. That all these Cambridge and Oxford students, highly educated people, some from wealthy families, were living on the same level as them, traveling in the backs of the trucks, leak, you know, eating the five rupee, five rupee for an entire meal, I think it was three rupees back then, and seeing millions and tens of millions reached with the gospel. And so that vision also became a reality, and today, uh, in our fellowship, there are about 3,000 churches, there's 100-some schools, there's dozens of humanitarian agencies, all because these students in Great Britain, and that's where I moved to from Spain, responded to the challenge of radical discipleship and global missions. And then came the vision of the ship. That's when people really thought I'd lost my marbles uh, because I didn't know much about ships. But God just put it on my heart. We had all these vehicles crisscrossing the world. When we looked at the globe, we saw water everywhere. We saw the, and studied that a huge percentage of all the people in the world lived near ports. And God gave us that first ship. And we've had 45 years of ship ministry. That's where Angie and Adam met. That is not the main purpose of the ship. Uh, <laughs> that, that is a, that's, a, that's a side uh, purpose. Over 1,000 couples have met each other on Operation Mobilization. We did pioneer international marriage. We pioneered marriage between Pentecostals and conservative Baptists. <laughs> Don't ask about their children. We, and uh, at times it got messy, and that's why God gave us messiology to keep us encouraged. Well, what's now the senior year vision? When I stepped out of leadership and I chose total closure, including advisory, no committees, I'm, I'm out. It's up to you now. I want to do special projects. I want to raise money. I'll stay in the movement. Uh, one of the best things you can do as a founder to stay in good relationship with your movement, raise money. They all need money. But don't get in, the, don't get in there giving them advice or telling them they're doing the wrong thing. And the last 15 years have been just as exciting and challenging and stretching as the previous 46 when I was the leader of that movement. But people expected me to come up with some bizarre vision because I was George Verwer, the visionary. But the vision God gave me was to stand as a servant behind the army of visionaries that we now had all over the world. As OM gave a lot of freedom for each field, we're in 110 nations, to develop the strategy for their field. And it was more or less a field-led movement, uh, of course, with coordination from the top and from our international leadership. But at the same time, God did give me a vision, and he did bring enormous change into my life. People say when we're older, uh, we don't easily change. There's an expression, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Let us stand against that stupid expression. That is not in the Bible. I know some of you haven't read the Bible yet, and so you don't know, but it's not in the Bible. You can, we're not dogs. Now, we did have some churches in England that were barking for a while, and uh, I, I think due to the local cats, they closed down, and that's not happening anymore. And so, in fact, some of the biggest change in my life took place when I was over 60 years of age. As we began to look at the challenge of social action 
and humanitarian crises, the AIDS thing, the unborn challenge, the water challenge, and listen to what they said in Lausanne in the mid-70s. I was there. I signed the covenant, but it never really changed me. C.S. Lewis says we have the tendency to think, but not to act. We have the tendency to feel, but not to act. And he went on to write something I'll never forget, that if we keep thinking and feeling without acting, someday we are unable to act. And that will explain some of the people in some of your churches. They have thought about things so long, they have felt things so long, without acting, they are no longer able to act. And if they're older, you just need a lot of love and patience for them because they will not easily change. But people who are radical disciples of Jesus and know the reality of the Holy Spirit, which does not change when we're older, are able to make changes. And the biggest changes in my life are 15 years ago when I realized from the scriptures, and there's hundreds of verses in the Old Testament. There are not as many verses in the New Testament, but there's plenty of ammunition. We're just going to look at a few right now that show that part of our task in mission has to do with people's physical suffering. By the way, many missionaries were on the cutting edge of doing this 100 and even 200 years ago. A lot of things that we think are new are not really new. I think of this theologian who wrote this book, Everything much, 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 Must Change. As I read the book, I almost got ill. What, what, whoever mentored this person? A lot of these things that he says haven't changed have already changed all over the world. But maybe he was with churches and we're impacted by the particular churches we're with and his particular churches weren't changing. We should not make major decisions based on local uh, research. We have to do more research. The impact of the Lausanne Congress in which they decided that social action should come together with proclamation went across the world like a mighty tsunami. But of course, the church is, well, over 40,000 different denominations. As many were left out as were included. I was very slow. I, I believed that we should be doing something about all these things, but I thought World Vision will take care of that. Or Tear Fund, that's a big British uh, thing similar to World Vision. We have World Vision as well. Or other missionary agencies, that, you know, they specialize in medical. But we in OM, it's mass distribution, it's church planting, it's revival, it's leadership training. We, you know, we're already broke most of the time. How are we going to go start build a hospital as well? We'll be out of our minds. And God just broke me. And one of the passages he used to change my life, together with the writings of many different men and women of God, including Joseph Tsouza, the leader of our work in India, one of the first fields to embrace this, and uh, Debbie Maroff, who gave us that book, uh, True Grit, and then uh, SOS, that many of you now have. Many other things happened. There's not time to explain. It was a pilgrimage actually going on for years. And finally, wham, the vision came. And also the vision that the rest of my life, I must give a huge part of my time for people who are laying by the side of the road. Turn with me to Luke 
chapter 10, verse 27. Or it's better to pick it up at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. And then Jesus tells a story. The story of uh, the Good Samaritan. And so my senior year vision that I've been working at now 15 years is uh, the Good Samaritan vision. It's to challenge God's people not to just be preachers and teachers and winners of people to Jesus. We used to call them soul winners. But to be Good Samaritans. One of my first experiments with this message was with a thousand leaders in Brazil. I'll never forget it. I spent the whole time on Luke 10, which I'm not doing tonight. And when I gave the invitation at the end for these pastors and leaders to become good Samaritans and begin doing what the good Samaritan did, helping people who are wounded and hurt in a multitude of different ways, spiritually or physically laying by the side of the road, almost 90% of those Brazilians stood up and prayed that they would be good Samaritans. But I think it's good to read the rest of the passage because there's so much in it. And I hope if you haven't preached a hot message on the Good Samaritan to your own church, that you surely will in the next few weeks. And let me know after you do it, especially if you get fired. I'll try to help you find a new job in Mongolia or Ethiopia, Eritrea, places that don't have so many pastors. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, and God gave me the vision that this was me, that I was walking away from tough impossible social situations, the sex traffic crisis, other things that we'll mention in a moment. It's interesting that we not only have that one negative story of religion without reality, which could be for our day Christianity without obedience, but then we have to have that driven home a second time. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. What a strong message. Now, another thing we need to remember is that God in his sovereignty, giving us this story in his holy word, and the Lord Jesus has chosen a Samaritan to be his hero. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The Samaritans are like the untouchables of India, the Dalits. They're not heroes. And yet here, this so-called enemy becomes the hero and puts into practice the basic teaching of Jesus concerning loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So to or go to the next verse, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. 
And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, put the man on his donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. So basic, so clear. If we're really honest about Scripture, there's no way we can run away from this. And woe to any of us who embrace this hyper-dispensational idea in which we end up with just a few books in the Bible that we can read, and then we're not so sure about them as well. You might want to pick up Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount and get a biblical view. And again, it's not a problem if you don't agree with me as long as you embrace messiology. And so here he is helping out, caring for this man. And as a fundraiser, the next verse is one of my favorite. Look at that. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. You know, confession is good for the soul. And so I need to confess why I accepted this meeting. If you think it was just to speak to you guys, you may guess again. I'm very pragmatic. I like at least three or four major goals for everything I do. And uh, my main job, one of them, next to prayer, is fundraising. And I didn't expect to do much of that here. But I knew on the way here I could stop in Vancouver, Canada, where we have one of the greatest financial supports, supporters in the entire history of our work. It's just completely off the charts how God has blessed this man who started his business from nothing and invented something that a lot of people need and releasing hundreds and hundreds of thousands for global missions. And so I had a wonderful night with him. And then I had another man in Seattle who especially likes to give to me. My man in Vancouver likes to give to all kinds of things, especially India and the ships, which is great. But the man in Seattle and his wife, they like to give to my special projects, which is the ministry helping me fulfill this vision in my senior years of investing in these uh, situations, which I'll explain in a minute, of people laying by the side of the road. And through that little visit, he set up a $200,000 matching fund. Every dollar I can raise for projects and for these people laying by the side of the road, he will double it up to 200000 which gives me 400,000. So the Lord sort of confirmed that this was the right place. And of course, you're the bonus because people are more important than money. And I'm praying, I'm praying for an impact in every church represented here because we've been here together, whether it has to do with me or one of the other sessions or just a direct intervention with God. And I might just say, as a Christian leader, I would urge you to take time alone with God. The vision for Operation Mobilization, and I didn't even say that much about it, and what we did in Europe came because I took a day out in prayer. And especially in those first 20 or 30 years, I would take these days out or half days just to seek God's face and get confirmation of many ideas that may have been running through my head. And so my life 15 years ago was completely changed. By the way, it is a theological issue. And it's not something you can just grab without a little bit of study. And you have to look into the Old Testament. And of course, you have to look at Luke chapter 10. I think of verses like 
1 John 3.16. We all know John 3.16, right? How many memorized 1 John 3.16? In this we perceive the love of God in that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The next verse. He who has this world's goods, if he sees his brother in need and doesn't do anything about it, how dwelleth the love of God in him? A little bit strong, right? Or what about Luke 14, 33? I'm sure that's your favorite verse. Except you forsake all that you have, you can't be my disciple. What a bombshell book David Platt dropped on the church when he gave us radical. More upset, more people got upset about that book than you can ever imagine. He quickly wrote another book to try to calm people down. And who knows what he's doing now as the head of the Foreign Mission Society of the Baptist Church. No doubt he's taken lots of aspirins. But God certainly has used that book in a powerful way. As he used William McDonald's True Discipleship back in the uh, 50s and the 60s. And some of my own writings on discipleship. So what is this vision now? God gave me a vision of seven people. He knew my limitations. There are many more than seven people that are laying on the side of the road. But he gave me this vision for seven because he's so merciful. And limitation is certainly a key word in my life. And I hope you live with the reality of limitation. Because there's a lot of extremism loose in the body of Christ. Especially in certain circles. Really, it's quite frightening. And I just believe with all my heart that no matter how filled we are with the Holy Spirit, we're incredibly human. And we have our limitations. We need some sleep. We need some food. If we're married, we need to have somehow some good sex. And if we have problems in that area, we should get counseling. But of course, we don't talk about these things. And this is why some churches have closed the door for me, especially in Europe, where I'm known as the guy that's always going around talking about sex. I haven't even mentioned it yet until now. <laughs> There's over 500 verses in the Bible about sex. When did you, some of you claim you're good Bible expositors. When did you last expound? Be thou satisfied with the breasts of the wife of thy youth. Don't tell me now. Send me an email. I'm sure I can learn from you. And so God gave me a vision. He gave me a vision of seven people laying by the side of the road and that I should raise money for these people. I should be their advocates as I speak on radio and television and meetings and that I should encourage those who are doing this and, of course, be available myself. And this vision has been consuming me and my wife and my little team for 15 years. Meanwhile, OM, in a sense, was ahead of me because they already made this change. That stands for Operation Mobilization. And soon we were moving in to hundreds of humanitarian projects across the world, combining it generally with church planting. And it's just amazing that we've seen more fruit in the last 15 years than the previous 45 years. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. Of course, God will lead different people in different ways. People who are full-time in radio ministry, they may not be able to do many of these things themselves, but they can be advocates. They can open their station for people who are involved in these areas. And so soon I had hundreds of people around the world. I remember that are linked into my network. 
I remember arriving in Serbia to speak at a Bible school, and I just touched in a couple of sentences on my vision for the unborn. And one young couple just, they just blossomed as they just began almost the first uh, ministry in Serbia for the unborn, where there's massive abortion, massive abortion. I just had the joy of sending them some more money a few days ago. By the way, my experience in God's work is the money is far harder to get than the people. Do you know how many people right now are trying to go into global missions, thinking globally, Brazil, South Africa, all those countries? Do you know how many? About 100,000 are in the queue, we say in London, in line over here. Many of them have gone short term. They want to go longer term, but they discovered it doesn't really work because churches generally will not support long-term people, especially once they have four children. Good luck, Adam and Angie. No doubt he's going to become a businessman and be a millionaire and send me lots of money. But again, plan A doesn't always work out. Praise the Lord for plan B. And I just, I just celebrate those who are generous to global missions. If you have people in your church who are generous, you need to privately affirm them and commend them. Because a lot of business people sort of feel second-class citizens in their churches. Business people also tend to be a little complicated. There seems to be a law, the more money, the more complexity. But they're still God's people. And if we take time with them, I believe we will see them become generous. The greatest generosity movement in the world is going on here in the United States. I could speak for hours about it. The gathering where you can't go unless you have a million. The generous giving program. Uh, Randy Alcorn's book, uh, Treasure Principle, is one of the most widely read Christian books in America today. And the results are hundreds of millions going out in the great task of helping the poor and the suffering and evangelizing as well. Many groups have the focus on proclamation. I'm the first guy to make a list of all the groups that have reached at least 100 million with the gospel. I have it in print if you want to see it. Almost 50 organizations, there's just a new one added a few days ago, that have given the gospel to at least 100 million. Proclamation and humanitarian action can go together even on the local level, even in your church and your community, and I'd acknowledge that's not easy. But why not take at least a few baby steps to reach out to some of the people in your community who are laying by the side of the road? I'm sure most of you already are. In closing, I'll just share my list with the hope that you might write it down on that page in your manual for notes. The first person that I committed myself to or group of people were the children at risk. Again, this book talks a bit about them, and God raised up a whole new movement called the Viva Network that did phenomenal research about children at risk and discovered the Christian church globally is doing more for those children than any other agency in the world. It's not coordinated except by the Holy Spirit, but it's phenomenal what has been going on especially in the last 30 years, for all kinds of children at risk. In our own work, for the first time we went into schools for people denied education. We now have 110 excellent schools. To go to one of those graduations in India, as I have, 
and see these Dalit children, untouchable children, graduating and headed off to university, I just broke down and wept. There's a film about it, and this gives me the opportunity to introduce at this time the rep for OM on the West Coast because he was involved in giving us this film about sex trafficking and uh, also the book, and Not Today, and Ken Camp, Where Are You? You're definitely here somewhere over here. Ken, just stand up for a minute. And if any of you would be interested in any kind of partnership uh, with OM, that's why I asked him to come, or with our ship, please meet him by the OM book table at the end of this meeting and at least exchange email. We are wanting to serve the church. We are not a denomination, except I'm afraid now in India, and we want to serve the church. And we want to bless your young people and give them a short-term mission experience and then send them back to you. Many who graduated from OM have ended up working with their own biblical denominations all over the world. We're talking about thousands of people. Out of the 200,000 who have been on OM, we estimate 25,000 are in leadership in the body of Christ. And so if there's any way we can serve together, we'd love to do that. I think all of you at least have that packet, and that may help you also get linked with us. The second group I saw laying by the side of the road that I want to serve and I want to love and I want to help, and that's abused women. This is why I'm putting this book in a hundred languages. I'm trying to, and now I have some more money to do it because I really believe we need to hear this message about women. We see it also in the Bible, but this helps us contextualize that into what we're facing in the world today. Domestic violence, sex trafficking, every kind of horrific thing being done, especially rape to women across the world. And I just thank the Lord for the privilege of being involved in a small way, helping my sisters across the world. Recently in a women's prison in London, I just felt such a linking with these women, some who had committed murder, who are now following the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, more than ever, our world and our society needs the message that you and I have. How dare we keep it to ourselves? How dare we spend so much time just talking among ourselves, often silly trivia things, and not giving ourselves to those outside of Christ, loving them, listening to them, sharing them, where the Bible says even a glass of water will bring a reward. The third person I see laying by the side of the road is the extreme poor. Now, we have poor people in the United States, and we should be, try to reach out and, and help them and beware of these generalizations as to why people don't have a job. Because life is a little more complicated. Homelessness is a huge problem in the United States. But let me tell you, this is not the poverty I'm talking about. I'm talking about raw poverty where people have next to nothing, where their children die of malnutrition and about 20% of the world is living in extreme poverty. And I thank the Lord more than ever in the last 20 years. It's been true long before that with people like General Booth. Have you ever read General Booth? The, the man next to God makes my life look like uh, somehow a slow walk through a park. And so there were those people who were way ahead of us. George Mueller and his orphanages there in the UK. Amy Carmichael in her amazing places out there in India. But today, the whole body is embracing this. 
they're realizing this is for all of us. This is not for specialists. Of course, certain things like medical has to involve specialists. There's so much we can do to help in the battle against poverty, always with the passion that people will come to Jesus. One of the biggest buzzwords in missions, I know it's got its dangers as well, is transformation. The transformation movement. Again, extreme people, dominion theology people, they try to hijack it. But I believe the basic message of the transforming power of the gospel in the individual and in the church, and as much as possible, the salt and light ministry in the community and in the nation. And then the fourth person laying by the side of the road that became a very big thing in my life is those who have HIV AIDS. Around the time that I was getting involved in this, one of the men on the committee to bring the ship into Canada had full-blown HIV AIDS. He was soon going to die. And I had the chance to sit down with him when people thought that was risky. Those who were studying it knew it wasn't risky and embrace him and hug him and have a friend who soon would die. Some of you know the amazing story of Christopher Ewan, who gave us that book. Uh, I think I had a few on the table, but I saw that they were actually in Spanish. Out of the far country. Here's a guy that was a rejected Christianity when his mother got converted, Chinese background people. Uh, he was a very strong practicing homosexual in Atlanta, got into drugs, making big money on drugs. The FBI nailed him, put him in prison, and God met Chris in prison. At the same time, they told him he had AIDS. In a miraculous way, he got into Moody Bible Institute. And I was auctioning one of my jackets, and the president of the institute ordered, offered me a measly 200 bucks. A young student stood up, Christopher Ewan, I didn't know him. He was 100,000 in debt, but he offered 400 for the global jacket because the money was for my global AIDS fund. When I delivered the jacket to him, I felt we gotta have lunch together. He shared his story and has become one of my closest friends in the last 10 years. By the very next summer, he was traveling through South Africa among the few, willing to stand up and say, yes, I have HIV AIDS. Yes, this is my battle with gender. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for me. He then graduated from Wheaton Graduate School on a Charles Colson scholarship because he'd been in prison. And now he was up until last year teaching at Moody. His global ministry is so big that he had to step out of teaching at Moody and give himself to preaching and teaching all over the world. That's just one of thousands of stories that could be told of God reaching people who have HIV AIDS. Christopher does not have full-blown AIDS yet. Wasn't even on medication until recently. And then the fifth person laying by the side of the road is the person that doesn't have this. I still struggle with having in Great Britain to pay a dollar for a bottle of water. I just, when I can get a cup of tea for a dollar, well, a little more, you know, it's a bit of a fight. 20% of the world does not have access to pure water. This is like gold. And I've been saying for years, it's total insanity that so much rain could come on a place like Oregon and not be saved and exported. It's worth millions. You just contact the Saudis. All you have to do is deliver it. Seems to be a problem. Not a problem with oil. And I believe 
One of the reasons people are suffering in drought is straightforward greed and human selfishness. And I pray somehow it will change because drought is an enormous problem bringing death to thousands and hundreds of thousands across the world. And so, yes, I got involved with water. I remember speaking at Biola University where in a crazy way, eventually they gave me a doctorate. But I remember speaking to the students and this message is a bit, it's a bit strong, this message, isn't it? So the students, I think, were getting edgy and I was just on the water theme. So I took the water and poured it over the top of my head, which I'm not in the mood to do tonight. And I will tell you, it was like a revival across the auditorium and I could finish my message. The sixth person laying by the side of the road is the unborn. And I do celebrate though the fact that many of you have taken this book. And I would love to send you a thousand copies or I'd love to send you 50 copies if there's anything you can do. It's a book you can even go around losing. Maybe you're shy, you're timid to give out a book like that to a stranger. Oh, you can lose it. You put it in a brown bag, just leave it behind. And when you get to heaven, you'll find this little baby was born because you lost a book. This is why the Christian life is so exciting. There's so many things you can do, even if you've got hang-ups and you're shy and you pick your nose in the dark or whatever other difficulty you have. And I just pray we will go from here all more proactive for Jesus in doing things that help people. And we will see some of them come to Jesus. Some of them won't come to Jesus. We have to leave that with the living God. And so I thank the Lord. Never dreamed that in the UK I would be given an award by mainly a Catholic organization for my activities in pro-life when I feel I've done so little. But you know, every little bit counts. And I just pray that you if you haven't already done so, we'll embrace social action and social concern together with your other aspects of ministry. My final person laying by the side of the road is not a person, it's Mr. Planet. Yes, Christians should be involved in concern for the environment. Don't overreact to the spotted owl characters and other things that seem a little bizarre. There's other things that are very basic that we can do. A lot of things are controversial. Don't be intimidated by controversy or complexity. Do what you can. Godly men have written entire books on the theology of caring for our environment. I found some parts of the book a little extreme, but I found other things I could take. And I think this is one of the beautiful things about our ministry. And I hope you remember that especially if you're a preacher. Tell your people, take what you can from what I share and feel free to leave. Leave some of it for another day. And I would say that about this message, which may be a little strong and even difficult to receive. Receive what you can and think about things for another day. Seven people that are laying by the side of the road. That's why I have more on my plate than I did ever did as the international leader of OM. A lot of things I used to do, like watching a film on an airplane, it's history. I've got my laptop, it's 300 emails waiting. I can back those emails with prayer. Though I love films and do watch occasional films, I don't have time for it here 
right now. I put in a 14-hour day, seven days a week, and I love it. Some days it's a little more than that. Some days it's less than that because one thing for sure, sleep is really important. God bless you as you think about this. I hope you wrote down the seven people by the side of the road. Some of you already have my card, which has the outline on the back of it. And I also would just give this plea that you would pray for me. With the film going out, with my books now over a million copies, more than ever, I have requests and I have increased people I'm trying to stay in touch with. And I don't, I don't want to get away from Jesus even one minute. And so I'd appreciate prayer. And if you feel you need prayer, I personally read every single email that comes my way. And I'd be happy to pray for you. And I hope if you haven't made this marriage in your theology and in your practice, that this would be a life-changing weekend. And if this guy could change in mid-60s, completely change my life and our whole global movement, then surely you and your church could make these changes. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this clear message from your holy word. As at the end of this discourse, your son, the Lord Jesus, said, Go ye, go ye, and do likewise. Enable us, Lord, to not be hearers of the word, but doers, and to reach out to so many suffering all around us, and with our finance, and with sending workers to reach out to suffering people. Yes, in all the nations of the world. Lord, it's already happening. Help us to be mission mobilizers, to make it happen faster, to make it happen in the places, the 40 nations that have so very, very little. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you.